you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 32 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now, let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you for your prayers for me and my family and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall. We appreciate them so much. Seriously, please, please keep praying for us. Well, today we are looking at God's plumb line for the end times. What correlation is there between Amos's vision in chapter seven of a plumb line by which Israel will be judged and the judgment that Jesus will bring as Paul describes in second Thessalonians chapter one, what correlation is there? Well, we will discover that today as we look at episode 32. And if you've been blessed by this episode, I would encourage you to please check out my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith, and leave a review there. Also, my GoFundMe campaign is basically done. It's done. You guys have been so great in your generosity and your support, especially your prayers for this project. And please keep praying because uh, once the album is made, that's, that's hopefully just the beginning of God opening doors of ministry for me to share his message of the gospel with other people. So please pray toward that, uh, that end. Also, my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, can be found on Amazon. And again, if that's been a blessing to you, please leave a review there. That would be so helpful for me. Well, you can contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can send me an email directly at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about this episode or about the scriptures, maybe an ethical dilemma, uh, please feel free to contact either me or BDK, and we will be sure to answer your question from a biblical point of view on that show, Ready With An Answer, which basically airs once a month on BDK's channel Omega Frequency and Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can find on Scroll Publishing's website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, let's get episode 32 rolling, a plumb line for the end times. The other day, my son was looking up how to fix a particular problem that he was having. He was searching YouTube for the answer, and he actually found out how to solve his problem, to which he exclaimed, Dad, YouTube is the goat. (laughs) I I had to laugh when I heard that. I'm like, the goat, the greatest of all time. What is it the greatest of all time at being? And what standard do you use to determine what the greatest 
self-help site is. You know, we, we are fascinated with measuring things and quantifying things and comparing things. Well, the plumb line, the plumb line is an ancient measuring standard. It's, it's been used for millennia in construction. See, in construction, the plumb line tests whether what was erected is perpendicular to the square. That is, if it is straight up and down. Like, if you held a le- uh, plumb line up to the leaning tower of Pisa, you would tell very quickly, if you didn't already just by looking, but you could tell very quickly that it was not upright. See, this plumb line provides a standard against which one can measure what he has built. It's a standard. The idea of a plumb line in the Bible is often defined as justice and righteousness. It gives us the idea of what is upright. And there's a synonym for upright. It's vertical. So what is upright is righteousness. It's vertical. It's straight up and down. And God will judge according to that standard. He uses his plumb line to find out if something is upright. And he will set us up so that we can see and he can see how close we are to adhering to, to his godly judgment of uprightness and right doing, this righteousness. He and we will see how much we are living by his standard when we stand next to God's plumb line. And when the idea of plumb line is used, God is very serious. When he holds the plumb line up next to his people, he is deadly serious. And we see this idea of a plumb line in Amos chapter 7. And let me give you a little bit of background on Amos. So Amos prophesied to Israel. He was from Judah, the lower kingdom, but he prophesied to Israel, the upper kingdom, just before the fall of the upper kingdom. So just before Israel was invaded by Assyria, Amos was prophesying to Israel, but he actually does prophesy to Judah as well, but it's more directed toward Israel. And so at that time, Israel was politically secure and they were spiritually smug. About 40 years earlier, at the end of his ministry, Elisha had prophesied the resurgence of Israel's power. And then Jonah had prophesied her restoration to a glory not known since the days of Solomon. So the nation felt secure. It felt sure that um, it was in God's good standards or God's good graces. But um, but as it grew wealthy, this prosperity increased Israel's religious and moral corruption. And so they fell into basically apostasy. It was a very, very bad time in Israel. So they had fallen into decadence. They had fallen into idol worship. They had fallen into um, a lax state in their religious uh, devotion to God. And so God gives Amos this vision of a plumb line in chapter 7. So let's, let's turn there now and let's read from Amos chapter 7. This is Amos 7 verse 8. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac 
will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So God is actually saying he's going to fight against his own people. Why would he do that? Why is God promising to destroy his people? Well, to find that out, we got to go back a couple of chapters to Amos chapter 5. And we're going to see three areas where they are falling short, where they are not upright compared to God's plumb line. So here we go. The first, chapter 5, verse 4, okay? It's their refusal to do justice and righteousness. Here we go. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live, but do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and catch, cast righteousness down to earth, they hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of gain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. And though you have planted pleasant vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. So this idea of justice and righteousness often correlate together. This idea of tzedakah, or tzedakah and mishpah, these ideas of justice, or sorry, righteousness and justice. And one of the ways you see this is basically uh, righteousness is doing what is right in God's sight, and justice is doing what's right in God's sight. So often they have this idea of treating people without partiality and looking out for the poor. If God is merciful toward you, it's only right, it's only just that we are merciful toward the poor as well. And so you can see here that Israel does not give two uh, cares about the poor. They do not care at all about the poor, and, and they are being partial. They accept bribes from the wicked and turn away the righteous. It's interesting. So they have unequal scales, as Proverbs 20, 23 would say. They have differing weights. They judge people differently based on what those people can do for them. And as Proverbs 20, 23 says, differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. So that's the first issue. They are failing to do justice and righteousness, to practice justice and righteousness. The second issue, as you see in Amos chapter 5, is this idea of syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is the attempted reconciliation or union of different or opposing principles 
practices or parties as in a philosophy or religion. You could think about like someone trying to be both a Muslim and a Christian at the same time. Like that, that doesn't work. This actually happens like in Mozambique. You can see it where people practice tribalism, this tribal witchcraft and Christianity, Christianity together. It's uh, the t- drinking from the table of, of demons and God at the same time, which God says, this is not actually possible. Well, that's what's going on in, in Israel at this time. They are practicing idolatry, which is like tribal witchcraft, and they're trying to practice Judaism at the same time, and God hates it. Let's start in verse 21, chapter 5. He writes, I hate... I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. So take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me? with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? No, you also carried along Sikath, your king, and Kiun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And it's interesting, this uh, Kiun, this is Saturn worship. It's I know that sounds crazy to some of us, but it's Saturn worship. And if you really want to go find some pretty crazy stuff, type in images of Saturn worship into your search bar and what the star of Saturn looks like. You might be, you might be uh, shocked that these, this Saturn worship is actually still around today. It's pretty crazy, guys. But it's not just in Mozambique, it's in America too. You know how we attempt to to blend in the traditions of men with the worship of God, the traditions of America with the worship of God. It is crazy what happens sometimes in church services, this syncretism that is so blatant and God, God abhors it. So let's move on to the last one. This last area where they are failing to meet God's standards, where they are not living up to God's plumb line. And this is actually in chapter six, starting in verse six. And the issue is complacency. Complacency. He writes, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalneh and look, and go from there to Hamath the Great, and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you bring near the seat of violence? Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves 
from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp, and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. It's interesting. These rich leaders of the people, they do not really care about God and God's word. What they care about is how they can make themselves rich. They're using the people to make themselves rich, and they are delighting in that wealth. They may have an appearance to some of being religious, but really God sees their heart. God sees their heart, and he is not pleased. So, I said at the beginning of this episode that there may be a correlation between this plumb line in Amos and the plumb line God uses in the end times. So let's check this out. What is God's plumb line for the end times? Well, Paul gives it to us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And he's speaking of the return of Jesus and the judgment and wrath that follows. He says this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So it's interesting. Paul lays out the plumb line for the end times, for the last days. He says, those who experience the flaming fire of the wrath of God are those who don't know God and therefore do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so simple. We are called to obey Jesus, to obey what he taught, to obey Jesus's commands. So does Jesus in the New Testament affirm those same standards that God laid down for Amos for the people of Israel. Let's look at the first one, a refusal to do justice, to practice justice and righteousness. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of sheep and goats. And he says this, starting in verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. 
All nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will say also, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not take care of you? And then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You think God cares about justice and righteousness? If you take this parable seriously, if you take Jesus at his word, maybe Many churches need to revamp their budget. Maybe we as individuals need to revamp our budgets. Maybe we need to start having hard conversations about what we actually believe in and what we actually value. Do we value what Jesus values? Do we love him? Are we practicing justice and righteousness? It really matters. Well, the next one is syncretism. Syncretism, remember, it's this like trying to to keep two opposing views together (laughs) as if darkness and light could actually hold hands. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Again, these are red letters. These are the words of Jesus. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you, you have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So these people are practicing idolatry. You know, Balak tried, he, he hired Balaam to curse Israel. God would not allow Balaam to curse Israel. And so Balaam got Israel to curse themselves, to fall under the curse by, by intermarrying with foreign women and practicing idolatry practicing idolatry while they were following God in the wilderness. Isn't that crazy? That's just crazy. Had a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, angel of the Lord in front of them, having manna from heaven, eating that, that they're eating every day, water flowing from a rock, all these miracles, and yet still they're practicing syncretism. You know, one of the ways that you see that in the New Testament, this idolatry it, it, it often, idolatry and, and uh, worship of God, supposedly, it often plays in where it's being mixed with nationalism. And you can see that in John chapter 11 pretty well. This is after Lazarus has been raised from the dead and the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem, they are like, we can't let this go on. This is getting out of control. The whole world is following after them, after Jesus. And so starting in verse 47 of chapter 11, John writes this, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. <laughs> Look at what they care about. They care about their building and their power. They're putting their love of country and their love of wealth and their love of power above their love of God. It's interesting, this syncretism. And you see it again in John chapter 19, verses 12 through 15, when Jesus is on trial and Pilate is trying to release Jesus because he realizes that he's an innocent man. And you see in verse 12 of chapter 19, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out and said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Syncretism. The last one is complacency. Complacency. Now we'll turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus says this, 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, quote, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down on my father's throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. It's interesting. Jesus wasn't even in the church. They think they're worshiping God and he's not even in the church. He's not even there that complacency. They're playing church. They're going through all the motions. I bet they have the best PowerPoint, the best buildings, all kinds of stuff. They got the best tools that money can buy to put on a great worship service. And Jesus isn't even in the building, but he wants to come in. He wants to come in if they will change their mind, if they will accept reproof and discipline. He wants to come in. Now, what did the early church say about these things, about God's plumb line, basically, about what's going to matter at the end? What's really going to matter? How are we going to be judged when Jesus comes back? Well, this is Irenaeus in 180. Irenaeus, he's the Bishop of Lyon, highly respected dude. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, who was a disciple of Jesus. You see that chain of custody there. He writes this. You will notice, too, that the transgressions of the common people have been described in like manner, not for the sake of those who transgressed, but as a means of instruction to us, that we should understand that it is one and the same God against whom these men sinned, and against whom certain persons do now transgress from among those who have professed to believe in him. So, pause. Right there, he's saying, look, the stuff that happened to the Israelites... That was for our instruction. He's basically quoting Paul there, who says the exact same thing. But this also has Paul declared most plainly in the epistle to the Corinthians, when he says, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant about how all our fathers were under the cloud, and all were baptized unto Moses in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual meat, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. These things were for our example, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither should we be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them also did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Neither be murmurers, as some of them murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. But all these things happened to them in a figure and were like a type and were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world has come. Therefore, let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And he continues, So says the apostle in like manner in the epistle to the Thessalonians. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So basically, Irenaeus said that God's plumb line has not really changed. It hasn't changed. Jesus has amplified and fully illuminated for us what God's standards are, but the core ideas are the same. So what's the remedy to this? What's the remedy to this? How do we get straight in line with God's plumb line? Well, it's pretty simple to understand. It's fulfill the great commission. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to his disciples after he had uh, already risen from the dead. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, disciples, it's it, discipleship to Jesus. It's not about teaching uh, another person how to play guitar. It's not about teaching another person how to preach. It's teaching people to follow everything that Jesus, Jesus, everything that Jesus commanded. Now, what Jesus says in the Great Commission is so plain that it takes an elementary school education to understand. Jesus actually expects his followers to obey all of his commandments because that's what followers of Jesus do. It's not about tradition. It's about following Jesus's commands. If we do that, then we will be those who obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So we really have to watch out for the traditions of man that take the place of the commands of God in our gatherings. Cyprian wrote about that in uh, 250 AD. He said, what obstinacy is that or what presumption to prefer human tradition to divine ordinance and not to observe that God is indignant and angry as often as human tradition relaxes and passes by the divine precepts. As he cries out and says by Isaiah the prophet, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. 
Also, the Lord in the gospel similarly rebuking and reproving utters and says, you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your own tradition and mindful of which precept the blessed apostle Paul himself also warns us and instructs us saying, if any man teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his doctrine, he is conceited. He knows nothing. And from such a person, withdraw yourself. Strong words. Strong words. But do we take the strong words of Jesus seriously? How are we measuring up to God's plumb line, not just for the Israelites, but for us? So let me just give you three challenges based on the three areas of God's plumb line that we covered today. Number one, I want to encourage you to spend yourselves, spend yourselves in looking out for those who can't look out for themselves and conduct your affairs without partiality. Number two, make sure your allegiance and devotion is completely with Jesus. Watch out for the allure allure of non-biblical traditions and nationalism. And finally, go all in. Go all in with Jesus. Don't be complacent. Go all in. No matter the cost, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Go all in, not with the world, but with Jesus. God bless you. Days are known.